After the proclamation of God's word, let us sing from Psalm 147 once more, the remaining stanzas, four, five, three, four, five, and 6. Our text, as was mentioned, is Psalm 147 in its fullness. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, do you think it's strange what we read earlier that God's people have to be told to praise the Lord? Yet that's how it often is. That's how the psalmist begins, praise the Lord, and that's how he ends, praise the Lord. He's telling us to do this. Why do we need to be told? Is it not because life seems to be too much for us? We're easily overwhelmed. We're hurting, going through difficult times, perhaps going through circumstances that make us a little sour and bitter and get we get jaded because God does not work according to our timetable and so our wind leaves our sails and our praise deflates and when that happens we become careless careless in our worship careless in our attitudes careless in our devotional life and in, in prayer, careless in how we treat others, simply careless. Could there be a worse thing we could say about life than I could care less? What if God would say, I could care less? But that is exactly the context into which Psalm 147 is speaking, a context where God's people needed encouragement to praise God. And so this psalm answers the concern of a people who have known and experienced hurt and struggle and brokenness and deep pain. And the psalmist wants to direct them back to who God is and why he should be praised. Ultimately, it's because this God cares for you. And we need to praise God for that very same reason we today, because God cares for us. We'll explore this this morning as we look at his care as it is evidenced in his love, in his provision, and in his word. First, we'll look at how his care is evident in his love as I said, this psalm begins in the first verse as it ends in the last verse, which is also true of Psalm 146, the previous psalm, by the way. Praise the Lord. And so it concludes, praise the Lord. And everything in the middle tells us why. And so as one commentator put it, it's like an Oreo cookie. And the and the icing sandwiched on the inside is really good. The, the text says that in verse 1. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. We know there are some things that are pleasant but not fitting. And there are some things that are fitting but not pleasant. But praising God is pleasant and fitting. And one, one reason it's fitting is because 
we are designed to know and praise God. And we know that those who do not know God or praise God are not living then according to their design. Like trying to drive a boat down the highway or trying to to use a net to scoop water won't work. We're created to respond to God. We're created in the image of God. We're created to know God and glorify God and enjoy fellowship with God in Christ Jesus. We were created for a relationship with him and to delight in him. And so when we're not doing that, you're living off the rails, so to speak. You are not living according to plan. You're out of kilter. You're out of focus. And so what do people do, many people? Well, they try to find something else to fill the hole that's left behind, the gap that only God can fill. As Augustine, the church father, said many centuries ago, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. That's because it is pleasant and fitting to praise God. Now notice what the psalmist says in verse 2. Here we see the evidence that there has been deep struggle and pain and grief that he and the people, his people have gone through. He says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Well, this is a people, this is a picture of a, of a people who are in a damaged state, in a damaged condition. Because there had been wreckage and destruction. This leads many commentators to believe and suggest that this psalm was written after the exile to Babylon. In the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, who were among the first returning exiles, and that's certainly a possibility. Now to be sure, most of us have faced problems in life, but most of us have not experienced foreign invaders coming along and taking away our property and our businesses and our wealth and our children and our belongings and then carting us off to a foreign country where they force us into slavery and put heavy crushing burdens upon us. Sure, we may not wholly appreciate the direction of our government institutions today, but they haven't done anything of that sort or that degree to us yet. But that's the portrait in our text. And God has stepped into this kind of situation to rebuild what was wrecked, to gather what was exiled, to heal what was brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. Well, this shows us that he knows us and that he cares for us so deeply that he's aware when we are going through difficult times. And part of how God does this work is by calling us back to himself, calling us back to worship, calling us back to devotion. And then in the very act of doing what is fitting and right by 
praising him, worshiping him and restored fellowship with him again, we find that he is there. He is there and he hasn't left us ever. And then notice how the psalm continues going from God's tenderness and kindness toward broken individuals to something bigger and, and broader. In verse, as in verse 4, he says he determines the number of the stars he gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant his power, his understanding beyond measure. Why go from talking about broken hearts and wounds to numbering stars and calling them by name and talking about God's omnipotence and his omniscience, his power and his wisdom? Well, the psalmist does it to show us that the God who is near and close to us is the God who orders the universe in everything it's to show us that God understands us perfectly and completely because he knows all the galaxies and all the stars. And with the telescopes and with the high resolution pictures that we have today, we have even more reason than the psalmist to be amazed and to praise God. He looked up at, at the night sky with the naked eye or maybe with some sort of primitive device that would have existed back then and he was like, wow. While we look through telescopes and, what we, and we see what the naked eye can't see and we can see farther distances than anyone else ever previously could. And so we have every reason to be amazed that God upholds all of that. And he knows the names of all the stars, every one. It's just a drop in the bucket for him. And he who has all power and might and wisdom and knowledge, he knows you. He knows you too. He knows your sin. He knows your insecurities he knows your pride. He knows your conceits. He knows your doubts. He knows your failures, your errors, your shortcomings. And he cares for you. He knows your broken heart. He knows your broken relationships. He knows where you've, where you've messed up. He knows. You see, our understanding is limited, but his understanding knows no limits. His understanding is not lacking or insufficient. He has it all right. He has it exactly right in order to bless us and teach us. And that's why he doesn't just give us then what we want because he knows that what we may want is not always best for us. He wants first and foremost to change us, to transform us into his image and it may involve a slow timeline walking down a difficult path but it's a wise path and a good path if it is the path of his will and he's able 
to change us and to transform us. He's able to do this because if he's able to, to name and number the stars, then he's able to know you and know you just as well and know what's best for you, to know what you're going through with each one of us, to know everything that's happening in the world. And so we know then that no one is getting away with anything either. We can relax. We can relax that those who are conceited, those who are getting, who seem to be getting away with, with what's evil in this world, those who steal, those who hurt, they're not going to prevail in the end. Because as verse 6 puts it, the Lord will lift up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Though the Lord is mighty and powerful in all he does, yet he does not admire those who think they are mighty and powerful. He has no use for them, but he, he focuses his attention on the humble. And he helps those who have no strength in themselves. We come now to our second point, looking at his provision. Here now at verse 7, the psalmist shifts, but, but calls us again to worship. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Pull out all the stops with your musical gifts, he's saying, and give thanks to God. And with this call, he starts talking about the sky and the clouds and the earth and the rain and the, and the grass that's growing on the hills and the food and the cattle and the young ravens. What's the purpose of bringing all of this up? Well, once again, it's in order to show his care. We might have pets that we faithfully care for or lawn or garden that we faithfully attend to by fertilizing it, by watering it, by mowing it, till the next winter arrives in, in a month or two. And yet, we might care for, for all the plants and the animals, but look at what God is faithful in caring for. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. He makes the grass grow on the hills and provides food for the cattle and the young ravens. God's eye is on the little sparrow and his eye is also on you. Not a hair will fall from your head, says the Lord Jesus, apart from the will of your heavenly Father. And we see there's this chain reaction in how God cares for things one thing leading to another, step by step, with nothing out of step. The Lord controls the cycle of nature. The clouds come. They produce rain. The rain falls and causes the grass to sprout and grow, and the grass becomes food for the animals. And so these animals depend on God's provision. He's at the start of the line. That leads to their food and their sustenance and their provision. They depend upon God. They wouldn't live without him. Even the wild mustangs that roam untamed in the, in the desert wasteland, God knows them and God provides for them. 
and he knows the birds and he knows every one of their little eggs in their nests and he hears the squawking of the baby ravens. So from the grass to the galaxies, it's all under his care. And so neither you nor your circumstances are unknown to him and you can depend on him just as all the rest of creation. And so the psalmist now shifts from from broad categories back to us in verse 11 where we read of the Lord taking pleasure in those who fear him. That is to say those who truly believe in his awesome power. And he also takes pleasure in those who hope in his mercy. That is to say, those who truly believe that God cares for them. He hears those who cry out to him for grace in the confidence that he can do more than we could ever think or imagine. But this has been always precisely the greatest challenge for the people of God to recognize that we are weak and helpless and we need him always because he is mighty and because he can be trusted to help. Our natural tendency is is to make God to be far smaller than he really is and we treat ourselves as much stronger than we really are. Our tendency is to hide our weaknesses from ourselves, from others, and from God. We tend to admire the strong and and the self-sufficient, those who can make it on their own, those who don't need any help. But this psalm teaches us that this isn't the case. We need to learn to sing of God's might and his care for the weak. For what does God delight in about us? It's not what the world delights in. The world, sometimes we're included in the world more than we think. We're all impressed with the premium athlete, the Olympian, the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the most handsome, the most beautiful, the most presentable, the most attractive and charming. And the world epitomized by Hollywood and the entertainment industry. It's like high school on steroids. It's like you people never got over high school. But roles and looks and strength are not what what impresses God. They aren't what matter to him. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, even the racehorse galloping at top speed, powerful, horsepower. Well, God made the horse. God made the man, every one of them. But the Lord delights in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Speaking there of his committed covenantal, marital-like love, the love of Christ for his church. That's what God delights in. And if that is what God delights in, then should not we also delight in what he delights in? Living to fear him, living to love him who first loved us. 
And will other things fall by the wayside in our lives so that we are freed up to do more of that very thing? So that's what God delights in, that we believe, that we trust him, that we look to him so that we are hoping in the way and the truth and the life found in Jesus Christ. So that we're devoted to him and so that we don't doubt him when we think that life is not happening quite the way we would have wanted or expected according to the timeline that we had in our minds. No, he delights in those who fear him, who accept his will, those who are humble, those who, are, who trust in his will as what is good and right and fitting for them. And he knows that, and they know that they do not have all the answers or all the solutions, but they simply want to serve him and follow his direction and hope in his unfailing love. That brings us now to our final point, seeing God's care through the giving of his word. The psalm now moves in verse 12 to the final call to praise Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. You can understand that. Praise the Lord, O church. Because Jerusalem and Zion were the old covenant people of God and we in the church are the new covenant people of God in Christ Jesus. Now why should we praise him? Because your God orders all of life down to the most mundane affairs. He even puts governments in their place. He puts law enforcement in their place. Just think about what would be the result if he removed all of that. We sometimes see the disturbing results that, that come when, when that's removed, when people riot, when anarchists go on marches and they run wild and they break windows and they steal things and violence ensues because people can get away with it now, unrestrained. But with good government, our borders are protected our welfare and our, and our properties are protected. And that's what the psalmist covers here in verses, in verses 13 to 15. He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He even fills you with the finest wheat. That's a, a symbol of without the order of government... You would have no economy. The wheat being a driving factor in the ancient economy. So we should lift up our prayers to God. To bring justice and order and prosperity to our, uh, to our land. Justice and order and decency on the part of our government. So that individual and communal prosperity and protection may thrive. But also that the gospel may go forth. As we're called to do in the Great Commission. So that real justice and real righteousness that starts in the heart may be manifest in society. And then the psalmist again talks about the weather. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. 
His command and his word are here related to the ordering of, of snow and hoarfrost and hail and, and his cold. Some things that are all too familiar to us. But he then sends out his word and he melts them. As we've seen recently, he makes the wind blow as it is this morning. And he makes the waters flow as we see collected all over the landscape. We can say this is all about the laws of nature. It's all about the Arctic ice and the ocean currents and the global temperatures and evaporation and all of that. But we know that this also is in accord with God's purposes, God's plan, God's providential hand and providential care and control over this world. It doesn't happen without his upholding and sustaining care. But that word that he talks about and the blessing that that word brings is revealed not only in a providential way, by ordering life, but also his word is revealed in a redemptive way, in a saving way, as we have it in his word, in the scriptures. And that's what he talks about at the very end of verse 19. He declares his word to Jacob and his statutes and rules to Israel. Jacob and Israel were nicknames referring to God's people. Of that day. To them he had given his law. He had given his word. He had given his good message. Ultimately coming to its fruition and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The word that he has also commissioned to the church. To bring to every nation still today. That they might know, that the world may know his law and his truth and his word and his way and his good message. He hasn't done that for any other nation. God has graciously revealed himself to us even though we were no more deserving than anyone else. And so here's the highest reason to praise God. That we, the ones who had rejected his word, who had disobeyed his word, choosing for sin in Adam. God in his love in Christ Jesus stoops down to give us his word, to speak with us words of reconciliation, to reconcile us to himself, not by dismissing our sin or by just winking at it and ignoring it, but by taking the penalty for our sin upon himself. So that, and so in Christ Jesus, he suffered the estrangement and the abandonment that we deserved. So that we could be brought near to God and he near to us. And he speaks of this through his word revealed to us in his law, in his decrees, in his righteous statutes, what is right and what is good and holy. He tells us all of this in his word. He has done this for no other nation but for us so that we can make it known to the nations. That's the good message we have and celebrate and though the world does not know his law or his rules, doesn't know up from down spiritually 
They don't know what we're here for ultimately to praise God as we learned earlier, to know God, to know his fellowship. Yet this knowledge has been given to us. That's why the psalmist bids us to be people who are busy praising God. But as we all know, living as people of praise does not come easy. Too often, we would fit better not with the people of Ezra and Nehemiah's day, people who were filled with praise because of, of God's restoring work that they could see, but we'd fit in better sometimes with the, the wilderness generation of God's people, made up of grumblers who complain about this and complain about that and this is no good and that is no good and I'm frustrated with this and this is too slow and other people, well, they just drive me nuts while all the while I'm able to somehow live with myself. The psalmist is telling us not to be grumblers but to praise God and give thanks counter many blessings as those whom he has brought into his church he has given to you his care his love his provision and his word so that you would depend on him for you're not in control you were never in control you don't have the power you don't have the knowledge you're not the way and the truth and the life you're not the answer but he is and so praise the Lord. Amen.